I think, I do think, and I, I resisted this thought. I, I fought it, you know, but I, I, I left the door in my mind open for it being possible. And the more time that went by and the more strange things that started happening to me, and I'm talking some full-blown poltergeist-type things that seem to have his signature all over them. The more these things kept happening, the more I felt that that, that he was really sending me a line and others yeah. to let them know. And I found this conclusion inescapable. Ladies and gentlemen, you know- This is not Blair Witch Project. Yeah. You know, I have no April Fool's joke to apologize for. This is simply the truth. Mm-hmm. It's the reason I did it. You know, I I didn't need to make another movie, uh, you know, for my benefit or, you know, for commercial purposes. I've done a lot of them. This I did to tell the truth about what happened after Fari died and why I think he's still with us. That's it. It just kept getting weirder and weirder and weirder, and it's still been going on after, well, we're about five years now, still going on. I knew I was alone in the house. The doors were locked. There was no one physically present but me. And when I looked at the document, It had been changed in the few minutes since I went into the bathroom. There were four words now blotted out. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with Another edition of BOA Audio Season 8. On this installment of the program, we welcome filmmaker and artist Paul Davids for a discussion on his captivating film, The Life After Death Project. And at the risk of spoiling things here, because we're going to get into it in the conversation, The Life After Death Project is about a series of very strange events that happened to Paul Davids and his friends following the death of sci-fi film icon Forrest J. Ackerman. And it's all documented in the movie. And we're going to get into all that here in this conversation with Paul Davids, as well as an overarching look at the after-death communication phenomenon as a whole. Additionally, Since Paul Davids is predominantly well-known in esoteric circles for his film, which he produced and co-wrote Roswell, which came out in 1994, we're going to reflect on the 20 years that have passed since Roswell came out and look at the UFO enigma and get Paul's thoughts on that ever-puzzling phenomenon that is unidentified flying objects. Altogether, it is a fast-paced edition of the program featuring a number of wondrous stories that will have you pondering what really happens when we journey to the great beyond, as Paul Davids tells us about the life 
After Death Project. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Paul Davids, please allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Filmmaker and producer Paul Davids films are known for controversy, beginning with Roswell, starring Martin Sheen, Kyle MacLachlan, and Dwight Yoakam, a 1994 nominee for a Golden Globe as Best TV Motion Picture, which he executive produced and co-wrote as a Showtime original movie. It dealt with issues of extraterrestrial life and the purported truth embargo on the subject of E.T. contact. Paul attended the American Film Institute Center for Advanced Film Studies in Beverly Hills. He began his career in film as a script reader for Hollywood agent Paul Koner. After writing his first produced film called She Dances Alone, Paul's career in film and television took off when he got his first break as production coordinator of the original Transformers TV show for Marvel Productions in 1985. Information on all of his films, including She Dances Alone, Showtime's Roswell, Timothy Leary's Dead, The Artist and the Shaman, and Before We Say Goodbye, can be found at pauldavids.com. His most recent film, The Life After Death Project, had a world premiere on Sci-Fi in May of 2013, and is now available as a two-DVD set at Amazon and other DVD venues, sold with the sequel, The Life After Death Project 2, Personal Encounters. Once again, his website is www.pauldavids.com. Don't forget the S at the end, my friends. pauldavids.com. Check it out. And, with all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on April 3rd, 2014. Paul Davids, talking about the Life After Death Project, on BOA Audio, Season 8. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio, Season 8. Just had the chance to sit down and watch our guest's film, it is the Life After Death Project, and I'm talking about, of course, Paul David's filmmaker, producer, creator of fantastic films, not just Roswell and the Life After Death Project, but Jesus in India, the movie, also a film about LSD and Dr. Timothy Leary and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I'm really looking forward to talking to him about this new film here, the Life After Death Project. Uh, I've often lamented on the show sometimes that... Sometimes the paranormal has trouble representing itself. Uh, but then when you take a really good topic and you put it in the hands of a really good filmmaker, storyteller, uh, communicator like Paul Davids, you get a fantastic uh, output like the Life After Death Project. So we need more stuff like this. We need more uh, great communicators to harness these great stories. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about here on the program tonight. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate the opportunity. Now, we usually start out, first-time guests, the bio, the background, you know, give folks a little thumbnail on who Paul Davids is, and uh, tell us a little bit about your journey uh, into the world of filmmaking. Well, I, you know, I started in filmmaking when I, was, uh, when I was a kid. I always knew it was what I wanted to do. Um, after college at Princeton, I went to the American Film Institute Center for Advanced Film Studies in L.A., mm-hmm. and after graduating a few years later, it became an entree into the business uh, I worked for a very famous and wonderful agent named Paul Koner, <clears throat> which put me 
in professional contact with greats like Charles Bronson and William Wyler and John Huston, who were his clients. And sometime after that, I became the production coordinator for the original Transformers cartoons. Nice. Mm -hmm. And that put my name up there in lights on TV on 79 episodes of the Transformers. And I wrote some of them, too. Uh, around that same, well, in the years, a couple years after that, I um, had a contract with Lucasfilm to write some sequel books, uh, mainly for younger readers of Star Wars, and wrote six of those, and those were very popular. Then came Roswell, the movie, for Showtime. I was the force behind launching it and, and getting it made, hmm. and uh, very proud of the results, and it's become kind of a cult classic after... You know, 1994. It's it's been a long time since since Roswell, and I think it still holds up. And and then you know, uh, in addition to my art, my painting, um, I have an exhibit now at the Ritz Carlton in Laguna Beach of my work uh, as a painter, uh, Paul David's, and then a hyphen, and then artist.com has a lot of my art. Um, so in addition to the art and uh, and some other books that I've written, it's been about 10 independent features that I've made now. You mentioned LSD and Timothy Leary. That was called Timothy Leary's Dead. came out in 1997, shortly after Timothy Leary, uh, his passing. Um, the Artist and the Shaman, Starry Night about Van Gogh, The Sci-Fi Boys, actually one of my most successful films. Mm, yeah. Um, about the history of special effects in film with Peter Jackson uh, as the host. And uh, many of the major uh, directors and producers of uh, fantasy and special effects science fiction films contributed uh, to that to that movie. Um, I did a, a Hispanic film based on a stage play called Before We Say Goodbye. Um, and you mentioned Jesus in India, <clears throat> filmed in India about the missing years of Christ. And then came my most recent one, which is actually two movies. Hmm. Uh, the, it's, it's the Life After Death Project. There's a part one and part two. The DVD has them both. Right. The first one was on the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, and then the DVD set came out. And I put a lot of ex, you know, extras on it, and it has the, the, whole, the whole sequel. But that one is about the evidence for Life After Death. And how a skeptic like me, <laughs> raised in a non-religious family, is you know, a contemporary materialist, um, uh, it came to be convinced, mm. and and uh, and why? And you know, because you've now seen it. It's yeah, it's a it's a, it's a remarkable story. As I said, uh, it's it really speaks to when you can take a good story and a good communicator and put it together, you get a really. Uh awesome output from uh, the Life After Death Project. Just tremendous. I love the way it unfolded. It was really, uh, it was really, you, you see some of this other stuff on TV. It's kind of, it's vanilla. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's uh, sterile. It doesn't really have that kind of feel to it. This, this, this was a story. This really, uh, really pulled you into it. Um, and, and Tim, it's important to, to say it's not fiction. Hmm, right, Everything exactly. in this movie is true. I'm, I'm documenting what actually happened that led me into this field uh, and that made me suspect that perhaps I was hearing from a deceased friend. Hmm. 
and brought scientists in to help me with what I felt could be evidence of that. Um, and it just grew and grew over a period of years. It's been about five years now since Forrest J. Ackerman passed away. Um, and he is, he was one of my mentors. Uh, I knew him throughout my life from the time I was a boy. And he's the, I would say, the main subject of the film, which, which emerged from his, his passing. And he, he, let me tell you a few things about who he was so right, right. People, people will understand. Forrest J. Ackerman is so important to this and was such an important and, in my opinion, wonderful man. Um, he's the guy that came up with the term sci-fi originally, and, and he was Mr. Science Fiction. He helped bring science fiction from the fringes into the mainstream. He was editor of a very popular magazine from way back, for, I think it started in 1958, called Famous Monsters of Filmland. And my generation all grew up reading that magazine you know, and waiting for every next issue to come. And you got to see pictures of his house that he called the Acker Mansion that was absolutely filled with everything he could possibly collect that came from science fiction and horror movies and some fantasy movies. And he had visitors to the house. You could call him up, go over, and get a tour any Saturday. didn't matter who you were. He didn't need to know you. He published his phone number. And he just knew everybody in the science fiction and fantasy uh, field. You know, a close friend of Ray Bradbury, um, Ray, the writer Ray Bradbury, Ray Harryhausen, who gave us so many fantastically wonderful movies from The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad to Jason and the Argonauts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fari knew everybody. Fari was also a futurist. Uh, that was the core of his interest in science fiction. What would the future bring? And uh, the philosophy of that and speculating about it. But he was <clears throat> pretty anti-religious, I would say. Uh, he um, was not a believer in anything of a religious or a spiritual nature. And he believed that death ends it all, uh, that there is no afterlife. Uh, as an atheist, no God, you know, no, nothing to pray to, <laughs> yeah, no beliefs. Um, so, uh, you know, as he was getting older, you know, he died at age 92, a few of his close friends, including me, kind of needled him with the question, you know, hey, Fari, what if, what if you pass on and, and you find out you're wrong? You know, then what? Hmm. And, he, and he, he would turn everything into a joke. He had such a sense of humor. And, and uh, for this, he would say, well, you know, if it turns out there is some great science fiction convention in the sky... He says, I'm going to be busy, you know, with my reunion with Boris Karloff and Peter Laurie and Bela Lugosi right, yeah. and George Powell and, and my, my dear wife, Wendane. And he says, but I, I could imagine there'll be a time when the partying will, will calm down. And if I get a moment or two, you know, well, maybe I would drop you a line. <laughs> you know, that's what he said. Yeah. With a, a wink and a, a twinkle, you know, in yeah. his eye, not believing for a minute that that was possible. And I think, I do think, and I, I resisted this thought. I, I fought it, you know, but I, I, I left the door in my mind open for it being possible. And the more time that went by and the more strange things that started happening to me, and I'm talking some full-blown poltergeist-type things that seem to have his signature all over them, the more these things 
kept happening, the more I felt that that, that he was really sending me a line and others yeah. to let them know. And I found this conclusion inescapable. So many things happened. And, and as I began filming the investigation, which had some physical evidence to it, uh, and visiting universities and scientists there, some scientists working with mediums, um, vetting them. There were chemists involved at University of Indiana and uh, College of New Jersey. And so many people lent a hand toward considering it, examining it, and strange things kept happening while I was filming. And, and I want to say, this is not Blair Witch Project. Yeah. You know, I have no April Fool's joke to apologize for. <laughs> this is simply the truth. Mm-hmm. It's the reason I did it. You know, I I didn't need to make another movie, uh, you know, for my benefit or, you know, for commercial purposes. I've done a lot of them. This I did to tell the truth about what happened after Fari died and why I think he's still with us. That's it. Mm, exactly. Yeah, that seems to come across. It's sort of your... You're sort of marveling at, at this uh, this amazing series of events that that have unfolded, and it comes out in the movies, which I, I really I really liked a lot. And uh, I guess let's talk about sort of the the big thing that sort of drives a lot of this. This is the ink the ink stain the ink uh, yeah ink anomaly. Let's call it uh, that sort yeah. of uh, is draped throughout the movie. Talk about that because that's a critical aspect of the whole thing. Okay, I'm happy to. I want to set the stage for it mm-hmm. by setting it in its time and place. Okay. Uh, Fari died December 4th, 2008. And the tribute to him was held months later, uh, March 7th, at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood. Every seat filled. People came from all around the world to pay tribute, to honor him. And there were a couple of Canadian filmmakers there that made a documentary about him. I'm talking about uh, Ian Paul Johnston and Mike McDonald. Right. And... They went to visit his crypt before the tribute and playfully knocked on the crypt and said, you know, hi, Harry, hi, hi, Fari. You know, are you home? This is us. This is, this is Ian and Mike. And, uh, they told me and others in shock that they heard from him within an hour of knocking on his crypt that he knocked back and that what happened with their computers, and they explained it, was uh, completely baffling to them and, and impossible. Uh, that it involved a capture code where they had to, you know, we have to write in the, the squiggly letters to prove you're not a spammer if you're mm-hmm. blogging and posting something. Sometimes they make you do that. And the capture code that came up was his name, Ackerman 000 within an hour of rapping on a script. And they were aghast. And when they started discussing it, and one of them said, you know, is he, is he, you know, is he not, not dead? Uh, you know, he, so the other computer, which was down, it had a black screen, um, wasn't logged on, spoke to them. It had a, a voice came out of it and said, oh my gosh, no way. As if in response to, you know, uh, you know, he's dead, right? Oh my gosh, no way. Yeah. <laughs> they figured out that the voice was an emoticon 
that exists at YouTube, a little smiley face. You can find a little cartoon of it. Mm -hmm. But this wasn't on their hard drive. And they were not logged on to YouTube at the time. So as uh, as uh, Mike McDonald said, or uh, no, Ian Johnson said, uh, my, my computer had no business talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so th so they told me that this happened to them. And, you know, I, I was skeptic about these things. Um, but I knew they weren't lying. You just knew it really happened when you heard it. Hmm. And... Um, and and the, you say, okay, when is the other shoe going to drop? Well, the other shoe dropped for me. Uh, it was about a week later when something happened to me of equal magnitude, and that's the ink blot that you mentioned too. Right. I call it an ink uh, a blot, not really a blot. Um, it was the fact that a document I had for review that had come out of my printer it had been printed an hour and a half before. The ink was dry. I'd looked at the first page. Everything was normal about this document. I had to go over it carefully. It had dates of phone conversations and meetings from the previous year, you know, possible tax deductions to to go over. Mm -hmm. So I just put this document down uh, on my bed and was going to climb into bed and look it over. Uh, I went into the bathroom for a few minutes. When I came out, I had the shock of my life for the following reasons. I knew I was alone in the house. This is my Santa Fe house. The doors were locked. There was no one physically present but me. And when I looked at the document, it had been changed in the few minutes since I went into the bathroom. There were four words now blotted out. First, you couldn't tell you know, how many words, but you could see very neatly and precisely blackened. And blackened in two different levels of darkness, hmm. uh, two levels of opacity. You could read the first two words through the blackness it spoke to, and it was still moist, by the way. You know, this couldn't have happened an hour and a half earlier from the printer. Uh, you know, the ink was dry then. But now this was moist. And the other two words, you couldn't read them completely blacked out. And... I was in, you know, my first reaction, I was in terror. <laughs> I was in terror. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, because uh, there was no one there who mm. could have done it, and I knew someone had to do it physically, mm. that it was couldn't be an accident. It wasn't, ink, it wasn't um, you know, water dripping from a ceiling or an ink pen in the bed. This was precise. Mm. And it's creepy you know, looking. It was within I, a line. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it, it, yeah. it's, it's creepy. It's creepy. It's, it's, it's a little unsettling. So I can see why you'd be a little frightened there. It was at first. It was, you know. And I, um, I, I also didn't get it at first in terms of if it was a message, I didn't get the message. Yeah. Because the name that was blacked out wasn't somebody who was a major person in my life. Um, I just didn't get it at first. <laughs> and later it dawned on me that it made perfect sense if you took it as a message from uh, from Fari. But I, I didn't go in that direction until I really investigated this thing. And, and I want to say I, I, I called up, it was Dr. J. Siegel, chairman, uh, former, now former. He was the chairman of the chemistry department of the University of Indiana when I called him. He just retired recently. So this was a few years ago, and 
I hand delivered the document to him. I wasn't going to take a chance on FedExing it. You yeah. know, no, nothing never left my hands after this happened. Uh, and I went into his lab. I brought video camera, and we began filming. And I felt, you know, if this, if they can explain this away, you know, okay. Um, if they can't, this could be really interesting. I want this documented. So I documented everything. And he got a scientist from College of New Jersey involved, uh, Dr. John Allison, another chemist he'd worked with. These guys were world-class experts in paints and solvents. Uh, and inks. And what happened to them was this became the beginning of a baffling mystery for them. They've worked on for several years and they can't solve it. They can't explain how it could have been done. There were things about it that were so unusual they defy uh, their usual scientific understanding. They could use an electron microscope to determine the chemistry and that told them some things. But what really didn't make sense is that of the hundreds of solvents that they know, and they tried experiments with like hundreds of them, hmm. they couldn't find a solvent that could make the ink dark enough to completely obliterate the name the way this had been done. Right. And it, it had uh, the evidence of the ink from the printer there, but much too much of it, more than was actually there at the time, plus some other elements. I mean, there was silver, and there was uh, calcium chromate that was never in the... just was baffling. And then, as I was filming, the labs, John Allison's home, weird stuff started happening that was picked up in the camera. Right, yeah. and it it was like for me it was like Alice falling down the rabbit hole. It <laughs> yeah. just it just kept getting weirder and weirder and weirder, and it's still been going on after well, we're about five years now, still going on. And I never know what to expect or when something's going to happen, but these things that just shouldn't happen or just seem imp- impossible physically or. Sometimes it's in the nature of a synchronicity, which is so improbable, or there's so many of them, that you're just overwhelmed by it, and they always tie back to Forrest J. Ackerman. That's the life I've been living for the last few years. It wasn't like this before. <laughs> well, it's it's pretty remarkable stuff. Uh, we had Bill Guggenheim on the show uh, a few months ago. He's He's one of the real champions of after-death communication, which I think mm-hmm. is, is what this all falls under. It's a, yes. it's an emerging uh, concept, I guess you could say. It's sort of an emerging idea. It feels like more people are on board with this than one might think. It seems like it's something that's almost... I, it might have been Gary Schwartz in the, in the documentary who was saying, talking about flight and how it started out as this remarkable thing that was like a dream, and then after about 10 or 15 years, we took it for granted seems like we're almost on that path with this after-death communication stuff because people, even the most hardened, uh, skeptical people, will sort of chalk that up to one of life's weird mysteries that, that strange things seem to happen after somebody dies that we can't quite put our finger on why, and it seems like some form of communication. It does. It does. And, uh, you know, the skeptics give us a really hard time there is a role for skepticism in, in, in all of this. 
you know, we don't want to be, um, we don't want to be, um, duped or fooled or come to completely false conclusions. And sometimes there are logical answers that we can't see right away for things that happen. So we do have to go through that whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some skeptics who have somewhat of an open mind. I think Michael Shermer, who's in my movie, was pretty reasonable with what he said in the film. He just, I mean, he doesn't accept the term paranormal. For him, it's like, look, we get to the bottom of these answers, it's going to be normal. You know, exactly. it's, It might have to do with quantum physics, whatever it is. Someday it'll be Chapter 25 in your physics book. You know, it's not... Um, uh, we don't need to invent all kinds of spectral realms that we don't know whether or not they exist. You know, or, or maybe we do. I don't But that's his opinion, you know. Hmm. And then you have very hardened uh, skeptics. So close-minded they are debunkers. And uh, some of them actually resort to tactics that I consider vicious, uh, uh, where they are so determined uh, not to... As they would say, I'm not going to let anybody get away with anything that suggests that there's a spiritual realm. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. You know what I'm saying. I know exactly. Now, when you saying, yeah. when you describe it as a kind of a new concept, it's not a new concept. Uh, what may be new is that maybe science is taking a more serious look at it now. But mm, I think I, I think I meant that it's just sort of entering the zeitgeist of of yeah. of, of people's minds now. You know, I mean, it's, it seems like it's more. Whether it's this, whether it's how how the ghost hunting fad sort of uh, stamped itself into the minds of people in the last ten years or what, but it just seems like the the idea of after death communication is more accepted by general the general public as as something that happens that we can't quite explain. Yeah, and we've heard about all the the various aspects of it. For example, uh, EVP, electronic voice phenomenon. There was a movie called White Noise, not a particularly stellarly outstanding movie but it made the point you know that uh some people feel that in uh in white noise like you might hear in a uh um oh uh, a, a radio that's sort of between channels that kind of thing yeah uh that staticky like noise you might sometimes get with a with a video or uh, that, that within that sometimes you'll hear words that shouldn't be there and th- this did happen to me in the filming of this movie one time, but the one time was enough to really set me off. Um, where, hmm, there was a mask from Zimbabwe on display in my house where this ink thing happened, and I had just had it there as an art uh, artifact on display in a plastic case. It was danced in a tribal ceremony in Africa and purchased by a friend of mine there and brought back to the U.S. And um, we did the the electromagnetic field testing after the ink thing happened around the house. And we were just getting ridiculously intense readings from this mask that has no metal parts. Um, And... You know, didn't understand why, but we filmed, we filmed this, you know, going around the house with this EMF, uh, reader, and, uh, it was during that section that, uh, we heard a voice of someone who was not there physically present at the time, and just saying one word. And it's quite distinct, uh, and, and it's a name, and the name is Lenore. Somebody says, Lenore. Oh, jeez. While we're looking at the mask. And, 
you know, Lenore makes me think of Edgar Allan Poe. I was just going to ask. It wasn't Poe, was it? <laughs> I can't confirm that, but you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, he, he had Lenore in the Raven. He mm-hmm. wrote a poem called Lenore, and you know, Fari Ackerman in his famous Monsters magazine was hyping Poe and Poe movies, you know, all the time. You know? Right. So, what's my fantasy? That that science fiction convention in the sky that Fari said didn't exist. That when he got there, he not only found the people he knew, but he also met up with Edgar <laughs> and introduced me to him through Lenore. <laughs> now, did who you? Knows? I, who knows? Who knows? I had the I had that in the notes about the mask. Did you do any further investigation into that? Because it seemed so remarkably uh, bizarre that that it seemed like charged with something. It would be interesting to see if yeah, anyone can figure that out. What what why it had that charge to it. It did, and and the charge, what was really scary that day was that the charge was also coming right from my very head. I mean, I had that on the film, didn't I? We were moving this thing around. I was standing near the mask, and the mask, the EMF was going off the scale, and you pointed it right at my brain. Right then, this has never recurred. But that day, the same thing was happening, the red light and and the thing clicking. And, uh, again, you know, kind of, very unsettling to me. But the mask, the, 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 you know, of all the kinds of things that I had in my house, you know, that that's what would have attracted Fari's uh, attention. He was a mask collector. His Acker Mansion was filled with masks, some of them life masks of various actors, you know, and masks from movie props. I mean, this looked like something tribal, like out of King Kong, for example, hmm. which was his favorite movie. Uh, no, it wasn't. Metropolis was his favorite movie. It was his favorite monster movie. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And the mask. I called up the owner of it, um, who had loaned it to me. Oh yeah, this Todd. is where it gets even stranger. This is what I like about yeah. the movie. Every time he, like when you, when, just to jump in here, just, uh, I want to yeah. hear the rest of this, but when, yeah. like, as I'm watching the movie, when you first have the ink thing, I'm gonna, I'm thinking to myself, oh, it's gonna turn out the person under the ink is dead. They died or something. So it's, every time you think one thing's gonna happen, it just keeps getting weirder. And, yeah. and, and these are like real events. You, like, as you point out, this isn't a story, this isn't fiction. And, and, and they're too, they're, there's, they're paranormal, but they're, t- they're normal. They're too normal for, they're not, these guys aren't gonna make up this story about a, a, a about a little ad thing popping up, uh, I don't know, we're on a computer. Like, just, like, the, no. you know, the, the stories are too normal to be fabricated, which is, it makes it all even more riveting. But, mm-hmm. I just had to say that, folks, uh, so they know what to expect in the Life After Death project. Now, let's, let's continue on here with Nothing this. was fabricated. I didn't know what was gonna happen. Hmm. I didn't expect Anything but these things just kept happening with the mask. When I called up Todd, who owned it, he said, oh, he said, I, you know what? He said, I, I photographed that mask in the tribal ceremony. He said, I remember it distinctly. The, uh, the year was 1983. He's, he's married to a lady, uh, a, a white lady from Zimbabwe. Uh, so his kids' grandparents are there in Zimbabwe still. And he said that was the year we took our kids to meet their grandparents for the first time. So he photographed that trip with, with slides. And Todd is a world traveler, and he's he has uh, taken slides all around the world. And from my generation, pre-computer, pre-internet, we used to use carousel trays. Do you know what that is? The carousel slide projector? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yep, yep. You know they they're round. And you would stack like 80 or 100 slides into them, 
and the thing would turn around in a circle on top of the projector, and you'd have a slideshow. That's the way you would see your pictures. Uh, so he had boxes of his slides from all around the world. And he said, I know right where it is. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find those, those slides that I took of the mask in, in uh, the ceremony and, uh, and get them to you. So then he calls me up. I don't remember. It was, maybe it was a couple days later. He said, uh, Paul, you know, I went into storage, and he said, this is really weird. He said, um, all of my boxes or slides are there, including the one that says 1983 Zimbabwe. And the carousel tray, the plastic tray is in there, but there's not one slide in that tray. And the clasp, the lock that goes on top of that is um, missing, but the tray is there. And someone has taken all the slides. And he says, now, I, I he says, I wouldn't have taken them. My kids wouldn't have taken them. My wife wouldn't have. They don't touch my stuff. This is in storage. This is locked. He says, I don't know where those slides are. How could they have disappeared? I never gave anybody permission to touch them. And he said, it's the only thing missing. Well, here it is now, over five years later, and the slides have never shown up. Okay? <laughs> and it's like they're just gone. And that's not the only thing that's just gone. We've had a lot of stuff that it, that just kind of disappears, and then it just kind of shows up in a different place after a few days or a week or sometimes never shows up. Um, and a lot of this seems to have Fari's particular sense of humor behind it. He, he was a prankster. He was very keen on wordplay and puns, mm. you know, like world's greatest punster. He collected puns the way some people collect, you know, magazines, books, or stamps. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he always liked the twist of words or finding a name within a name or a word within a word. And it would always kind of make uh, kind of a joke out of that. So just give you an example. His name is Ackerman. So sometimes we would call him Ack. And at the cover of Famous Monsters, he would say, this is a spectacular issue. And A-C-K, of course, would be in big, bold capitals. Yeah. Because that's his name within the name. Or Ray Harryhausen. If he, he, he once signed an autograph uh, for me. Uh, at an article he'd written about Ray Harryhausen, and he wrote, Hooray for Harryhausen. But he wrote it, breaking up the word, who, and then Ray, capitalizing R-A-Y, because that's the man's name. This was the key for me understanding what, what had been blacked out. Because the words that were blacked out were, spoke to Joe Amodi. Now, uh, Joe Amodi, the actual Joe Amodi, is a distributor of DVDs uh, in New York. He's been in the entertainment business. I had just called him one time and somebody's recommendation to see if he was interested in distributing my film, Jesus in India. And he wasn't, and we didn't transact any further business. That was it. But on my document, it had it had spoke to Joe Amodi. A few lines earlier than that, it had uh, it said left message for Joe Amodi, okay? So whoever chose the words to black out didn't black out left message. They blacked out spoke to. And I wanted to see Fari's editing style to know whether he blacked out words completely when he edited. And a lot of times he didn't, but I found some examples where he did, where he did things exactly like in my document. But to get to the bottom of that, I called up his caretaker, 
his closest friend of the last 10 years. They lived together. Jomo took care of everything for Fari, and he arranged the tribute. But before I could even tell Joe why I was calling, he interrupted and said, I got to tell you, I'm a skeptic, but I had an apparition, some sort of apparition, a Fari coming to me after the tribute. And he tells me how in Fari's own way and in his words and with his humor, Fari thanked him for the tribute. And he said, Paul, you know, it was as if Fari came and spoke to me. And at that moment, Tim, I just, I just went into shock. <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, and Joe said to him, it, it sounded like I had just put my hand on a stove or something. Yeah. Because it suddenly hit me. Spoke to Joe Amodi. The name Mo is right there in the middle of Amodi. That's what Fari always did. Find the name in the name. So he was telling me, spoke to Joe Mo. And this is exactly what Joe Mo was just telling me. He had an apparition of Fari coming after he died. He said, Paul, it was like Fari came and spoke to me. It was confirming for me hmm. that he spoke to Joe and thanked him for the tribute. It was a weird, offhanded way of thanking me, too, for being one of the speakers at the tribute. It's like, hey, Paul, maybe I haven't had the time to thank you for speaking at my tribute, but I spoke to Joe Mo. I thanked him. Yeah. Check with Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Do you understand how crazy that sounds? But, but uh, it's the answer. After five years at this, with all the weird stuff that's happened, I'm convinced. It's remarkable stuff, and like I said, the, the, the coincidences, the synchronicities, they're so, I, I don't want to call them mundane, but they're so normal that, that, it, makes, that it makes it more believable in a sense, you know, or that, mm -hmm. that's what makes the story uh, so remarkable. Now, what about the, I'm sure you, you know, you talked about skeptics and stuff like that. I'm sure people say, oh, that you guys really miss this guy, and you're reading too much into this, or you're, you know, you're seeing shapes, you know, the, the face on Mars out of a rock formation, you know, that kind of idea. Yeah. That, that, so, what, I mean, what's your response to that? Because I'm sure uh, you've, you've sort of heard this argument uh, from various sides. Well, you know, I tried not to jump to the conclusion that Fari was hmm. the force behind it. It came slowly to me. Um, it's almost like you had to be you, dragged to it. Is it yeah, you have to deal with the, the with the facts of each case of each thing that happened. In this case, the facts were the ink blot message appeared, and it was precise and deliberate. And the scientists concluded that too, and saw a mystery about it. And no one physically did it. Now, that relies to a certain extent on my word. I know that's true. And to the Society of Psychical Research in London, uh, I, I wrote them my own affidavit swearing to that, that fact, that that's the case. But I'm the witness to it. The scientists helped me because of their confusion about um, what's in there. But what I have to offer doesn't absolutely positively prove it to anyone. I'm using the facts and logic to say, this makes sense to me. I haven't got another answer. And when you add it, when you, if people listening, when you uh, see the Life After Death Project, don't forget the word project when you look for it, because there's a lot of Life After Death stuff. This is the Life After Death Project. Mm, yeah. When, 
when you see it, you'll see that there's, you know, 40 to 50 different things that happen. And that was only up until we finished the movie. I'll name a couple others of them. So just to give you, an, I, I, people listening, the breadth of it. The day that we heard that the film was going to be broadcast on the Sci-Fi Channel, that they had picked it up and said, oh, okay, we'll show it. Um, I went out to lunch for an hour and a half. This is for my L.A. house. House again, it's locked. No one there. No pets in the house. My wife's at her office. And I have in, in my home office a mask of Fari Ackerman that was in his Acker mansion for a couple decades. He always put it on top of some clothing that represented the costume he wore to the first World Science Fiction Convention in 1939. And I got that at a, the estate auction, along with many paintings of him and many, many binders of all the publicity notices, the newspaper articles documenting his whole life and his collection. I have all that here in the house. So, yeah. you know, my house would be a focus of attention. The L.A. house has all that. So I go out to lunch on that day for about an hour, hour and a half. And when I came back, the mask of Fari, which had been in a specific place for four years, unmoving, gathering dust, had moved across the room. And there was no one there to physically do it. It had moved over ten feet. I took pictures of this. And... There were no open windows, no drafts, no vents, you know, yeah. no fans. There's nothing to cause it. But it was his face, which makes it self-referential to him. And many of these things that have happened have been self-referential, you know, specifically uh, to him. I I don't know how to go beyond that. Uh, uh, take uh, something else that happened fairly recently. Robert Egby, a writer, uh, has a blog writes reviews. He saw the movie uh, in an early form, wrote a review of it, and then he was watching the final version of it with, his, I think it was his girlfriend. And uh, he said that when they were done watching the movie, uh, she pulls out her cell phone to check her emails. And she accidentally pushes the navigation button rather than the emails button. Mm -hmm. And he said, what came up on her screen? He heard her gasp. <gasps> <laughs> what comes up on her screen is a location 10 miles away that has an Ackerman Street. Filling her screen there, Ackerman Street. That's weird. It's not even where they are, you see. Yeah. Jeez. You just don't know something, what to... something similar to that happened to my son. Something similar happened to one of the narrators in the movie who happened to move to Munich, and his first day there goes out jogging, and he sees he's on Ackermannstrasse. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think there are at least 50 things. And even yesterday, um, even yesterday, the latest uh, in this chain of events happened and threw me for a loop. Yesterday, was it yesterday or the day before? I, 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 I don't remember, you know, exactly off the mm, yeah, top of my head. Sorry. But uh, it may have been, it was a couple of days ago now. But here's what happened. It was a day that a radio podcast out of London had an interview with me that was broadcast. And I was at a friend's house, uh, and, uh, you know, she, uh, she asked, did I want the fireplace on? It was sort of cold. I said, sure. It wasn't a log fireplace. It's gas, but it's a real old one that you have to uh, light. 
Yeah. You need a lighter or a match. Uh, and so she went over to the fireplace and she turned on the gas and instantly it was lit. The fire in the fireplace. She hadn't even, you know, moved her lighter from one hand to another. She hadn't even flicked it on. <laughs> it lit. And we both thought, wow, that's weird. Yeah. I mean, but I did call up one of the scientists who worked on the film. I told him about it, and I said, look, what could be a scientific explanation for this? Is there one? And he thought about it, and he said, well, you know, maybe... You know, maybe if the last time she turned off this old gas fireplace, suppose she didn't turn it off 100%, but there was still a tiny little bit of gas coming through, and it was still, it became almost like a pilot light, and she didn't even see it. So that when she turned it on, bang, it lights. And, you know, well, that sounds like it has a logic to it, but she couldn't get that to happen even when she tried. And she said it had never happened for 10 years. Weird. So yes. that happened, and a couple of other strange yeah. things happened. Do they just keep mounting? Yeah, it's remarkable. He's a very busy man up there, I guess. <laughs> Hi there. Do you have any books on how to get rid of ghosts? Have you tried telling them you're ready for a commitment? <laughs> you're listening to Banal of America Audio. Oh, like a relationship. Exactly. That'll send them running, huh? <laughs> I like her. <laughs> and of course, in the film Life After Death Project, mm -hmm. you see Gary Schwartz's research, University of Arizona Tucson. Yeah, you must be psychic because he just he hit every point. Of, every every time I have you get to every every talking point before I can set it up, you're, you're doing great. Because uh, I wanted to ask you about that. The in a way, it feels like the Life After Death Project uh, kind of encapsulates a little bit of where we are right now in trying to get to the bottom of all this, where where we're starting to really try different ways of using technology to figure this out. And I, at the end of the movie, with the with his with his stuff, um, I mean, I was going to ask you about this. This I don't even know really how to explain it because I'm not that technically gifted. Uh, but he's he's got some kind of means that might open up a door to some kind of communication. And, and we see that at the end of the film in a remarkable way. Gary Schwartz, whose background is from both Harvard and Yale, he's written many, many books. Um, my favorite one, uh, personally, uh, is called The God Experiments, but it's G period, O period, D period, hmm. which he makes stand for the guiding, organizing, designing principle behind creation. Um, and uh, he's written The Sacred Promise and I think The Afterlife Experiments. And he has been based at the University of Arizona, Tucson, for many years now, getting university support. He has tenure for his research into life after death. And he began with researching mediums. And he uh, met many of them, tested many of them, uh, there were some who didn't have the abilities that they thought they did. But he did find some people who were really, really gifted. Now, um, two of those he uh, involved me with to the extent that without him telling them who I was or what I was doing or who I wanted to talk to or you know, keep the information away from them, but did let me film them. 
And in one case, he said, you know, that this gentleman here with the cameras wonders if there's something he could hear from his friend Forrest. And we recorded an hour with Catherine Yunt. Uh, extraordinary, the things that came out that seemed to be from Fari in that. And uh, Gary Schwartz also organized a similar session with a psychic from Israel, Orit Ishyemini Tomer. And uh, she gave it about an hour. Uh, just knew nothing but the precise details that she came out with in the course of that uh, hour. Some of which were things about Fari I didn't even know. Mm. Uh, and uh, confirmed later. <clears throat> so, so you couldn't pull them out of your mind is a yeah. key aspect of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, her, her, her English was so-so. <laughs> she said, you know, this man, you know, where writing is it's important. She said, I see money from writing. And she says, he has this strange collection of these little dolls, these strange, weird little dolls. She said, I want to say like Yoda kind of thing. Hmm. Well, his collection was of monsters, you know, movie mo- the props yeah. from all the movie monsters. Where did she pick this thing up that he had this collection of these strange little dolls? She knew nothing. All information was withheld from her, you know, before we, we began. Yeah. So that was part of Gary's research. And then his research grew to postulate that if there are spirits... If they can hear us, if they have a way to be in contact with us, uh, perhaps we could organize ways that they could signal us. So it wouldn't just be a, a, a white noise with a random word or one word, Lenore, and then we have to figure it out. But it would be us asking questions, <clears throat> addressing a specific departed spirit who's invited verbally to be there, and having very, very delicate sensors that measure very fine changes in radiation. He accounts for the background radiation. This might be gamma rays. It might be individual photons of light. To see if there's a significant result, and he's built a computer software program to measure this, like bar graphs, so that he can ask a spirit to identify himself by using a particular combination of changes in energy, and it shows up in the screen. And when he began talking to Fari Ackerman, um, Fari selected a burst of three, a level three on the bar graph. Uh, this is what came back in response to these comments, and he asked lots of questions, and he got appropriate responses. Of course, this is just limited to yes and no. You know, the yes is if you see the energy response. No is if like 45 seconds go by and nothing happens. So it's the beginning steps of his research that he has plans to refine, make more complex and subtle, so that if this is a real uh, effect, and it does appear to be from his research so far, maybe the conversation could almost get to the point where it's more like a phone call hmm. rather than like a Morse code. Yeah. Right. That kind of raises the, the question. Do you think uh, Do you think we'll ever, as a, as a species, as a, as a human race, do you think we'll ever actually get to the bottom of this, or do you think there's something intangible that we're prevented from ever unlocking the secret of what happens after you die? Or, or do you think like technology is going to catch up with the mystery at some point? 
it's hard to answer. I I would vote on the side that we're going to know a whole lot more about it than we do now. That hmm. we'll be able to um, validate more and more of these things. I kind of expect that. I don't know how long it's going to take. But I do think that there's something inherent about this creation that we're part of that does keep some mysteries from us. Um, that it's kind of built into the system that there's a limit to how far we can go. I, I could be completely wrong, you know, because science keeps amazing us with new, newer and more astounding discoveries. So maybe there are no limits. But to me, it feels like, for me, the analogy would be the fish who's in the ocean. Yeah. And the fish uses gills uh, for, uh, you know, with the water, uh, you know, I guess to uh, to get oxygen. I mean, they're breathing with gills in water. We can't do that. But the fish doesn't know that he's in water. For the fish, the water is the normal circumstance. And it's like for us, you know, air is the normal circumstance. We have to breathe or we're going to... We're going to die. And if we go into space, we have to make uh, arrangements so that we can take the oxygen with us. But it's very hard, you know, just as the fish can't imagine a world beyond his world of water, I think it's very, very difficult for us to imagine a world beyond the physical, Hmm. you know, where we can exist and we don't have bodies. Right, right. Doesn't mean it isn't true. Exactly. Now, I've, you've touched on, uh, you've done obviously the Roswell film, and uh, that this yeah. sort of deals with the UFO cover-up. And, and in, in the course of this, yeah. the, the doing this show with various guests and talking about the life after death mystery, it sort of has come up in the past the idea that maybe uh, the powers that be, whomever they may be, uh, they don't want us to know this because to know the answer to what happens after you die would create upheaval beyond what they think the UFO secret would be. That that might be the, even the bigger secret is is that life goes on after you die or something like that. I mean, what do you think of that whole idea that that this knowledge uh, has been suppressed in a way uh, because it would create too much problems with society? You know, I kind of think the opposite, Tim, and I, I'll tell you why. I, I do think, you know, that the UFO thing has been suppressed. Hmm. Unquestionably, I think the the evidence of the withholding of that information is uh, voluminous. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and there's a lot of people working on that, and a lot of great books that have proved that you know they ain't telling us, and they're avoiding the subject, and we've been dished out a lot of lies. Yeah. Okay. That's the UFO thing. But on the life after death thing, I think that from the beginning of uh, man's organized civilization. The effort has been, on the part of religion, uh, not to deny, but to provide answers, and the best answers that they can at any given time. And others, religions have always told us that there is a spirit life, and that there is a continuation uh, beyond. But each religion seems to have its own interpretation of what that is. You know, there's some overlap, but a lot of them don't agree. Hmm. Nevertheless, um, most religions will tell you, um, yes, uh, you have a soul, you have a spirit, it, it, it goes on after your body is deceased. And the same religions tell you, you know, you're responsible for what you do in life. 
and there are consequences. And the word karma from the Hindus is, you know, what you delivered uh, in life, uh, you know, it's going to come to revisit you. That's the religious belief. It's not proven, but it's offered as belief, faith, and people are raised to accept that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the Catholic Church, for example, we know, uh, we know of heaven and purgatory, we know of hell, and all of those concepts, and they have concepts of demons, demonology, and, uh, um, negative spirits, and, uh, all of that's real within their religious, uh, realms. I mean, they have, they have exorcists, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they accept these things as reality. They're not denying them. They're not trying to hide them. What, what I think is going on here that's, that, that is interesting because it takes the religious basis further. And maybe shows it's not, it's not entirely mythology, you know, it, 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 and it's not just dependent upon faith, but that science can, uh, actually identify things that show that, that spirit goes on. Right. Um, and, this is what this is where my film points i think in in a very strong way that it offers something that uh as you say the more vanilla ghost hunting programs on television don't offer because uh, this takes us on a journey where uh so many unexpected things happen that couldn't have been predicted ahead of time that all seem to be leading us toward this conclusion, but deliberately leading us as though there is someone else unseen that wants to help us come to this conclusion. Mm. That's the way I feel about it. And I think that the movie is going to be very satisfying in that respect for many people, but certainly not everyone. You know, there are always the very, very hard-nosed skeptics or debunkers that they, they raise their bar so high they don't want to jump to any conclusions. I'm willing to jump to conclusions after I think the evidence reaches a certain point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think people will enjoy the film quite a bit. I, I did myself. And uh, is it still airing on Sci-Fi or? or uh... No, it, it, they just they just showed it once. Oh, okay. You know, I, I made it completely independently. There was no supervision or involvement with Sci-Fi when I was making it. And so this is not a Sci-Fi production. It was just that. They had aired my film, The Sci-Fi Boys, mm-hmm. um, had a very successful outcome worldwide. It won the um, Saturn Award for Best DVD in its year, 2006. Um, and um, so they they just agreed to broadcast it, and that made it so it was no longer a home movie. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's real. It has a corporate stamp behind it. There you go. And folks can find out about that at lifeafterdeathproject.com. That's uh, nice and easy for folks to check out. Yeah, I really did enjoy it quite a bit. And like I said, uh, these, it's, it's a real, it's a real moves away from what we're seeing on some of these reality shows nowadays. Uh, you know what I'd like to say? I, mm-hmm. in addition to being able to get the two DVD set, you know, you mentioned lifeafterdeathproject.com. Yes. Okay, it's my website. It has a lot of information about it too. Well, of course, it's at Amazon. And you can, Pay to stream it, you know, at, at Amazon. Nice. Or you can buy it, you know, buy the file, download it. 
it, it's set up for all of that stuff at wherever online. But uh, you talked about the great value in the fact that there are some filmmakers who give that extra something to a, a subject that, um, that that is really something special for the audience that uh, I, I forget what your exact words were, but the point was that this is a very special film, and I think all of the films I've made are in terms of their unique subject matter. However, in order for there to be people like me who can do this, because it can't just be a hobby. <laughs> you yeah, know, exactly. A lot of the stuff that's on YouTube, it's people's hobbies. Um, and some of us independent producers feel that our profession is being taken away from us or already has been taken away and, and, and turned over to hobbyists hmm. because it has become so much more difficult for us to recoup or profit from the investment we have to make of years of time and a lot of money to make these kinds of very specialized, special interest projects. Um, so my gripe is with piracy. It's very, very uh, severe gripe. Uh, it's out there. I think everything I've ever done has been pirated. Um, and most filmmakers can say that these days, where, uh, you know, the BitTorrent sites, these various piracy sites where they say, watch this movie for free. Mm, yeah. And yeah. a lot of them mean it. And to us, it just takes away our source of livelihood. So I, I make an appeal to your listeners this is so easily available commercially um, to, you know, please treat it with respect legitimately and don't go to the people that are basically, um, you know, they're, they're abusing the filmmaker, abusing copyright and making it very difficult for someone today to say, okay, what I want to do for the next few years is invest hundreds of thousands of dollars and all of my time to create a project that what? that a month or a week or a day after it comes out, lots of websites around the world are going to say, see this movie for free and take your poster, take your advertising. You know what I'm saying. I know exactly what you mean. It's uh, You hit the nail on the head with the word respect. It's it's People need to respect the work that people uh, put in to make these films and stuff. I totally agree with you. Thankfully, it seems like the technology end of it is catching up to the pirates in a sense where now, like you said, you can stream it. I think you said on Amazon, uh, you know, you can easily get the movie uh, now, which yeah, is for a couple of bucks. Great, you know, it, yeah. it, it, it's it's not, and uh, the sequel to the Life After Death project will be online for streaming. I'm told within the next few weeks that nice. one's going to be ready. Nice, along with some of my other films that'll just be coming on. Uh, Jesus in India will be up there before we say goodbye. The Hispanic cast mm-hmm. film based on a wonderful stage play that deals in part with the Catholic mystery of the miracle of the Virgin of Guadalupe. And it deals with faith. It's, uh, it's a very uh, touching and people-oriented film that also gives a, a very uh, in-depth um, feeling with uh, emotion and compassion for Hispanic Americans. Interesting. I'll check that uh, one out. Yeah, it's a ma- major, major issue in our society where we're talking about immigration and uh, you know 12 million undocumented people, and uh, we have a vice president, Joe Biden, who says that as far as he's concerned, these people are already citizens. Well, you know that isn't the law, but a lot of people would like to make it the law, 
and uh, the film Before We Say Goodbye, uh, I think really gives Hispanic American culture uh, its, uh, its due. Yeah, that's right. that one. Now, as I mentioned here when we started, the, the film Roswell, where I, I yeah. believe it's 20 years since it came out. So what's your, I guess reflect a little bit on the time in between since the film came out. Because it's amazing. Roswell is one of those stories that's amazing because it transcends ufology at this point. You can go to, you can walk down a street in India and stop a little kid and say Roswell, and they know what it means. And you know, when, when I proposed the movie, um, first to HBO, and then we ended up, we had development at HBO, then we actually did it for Showtime. I wanted to call it Roswell right from the beginning. I registered that title. Mm. Nobody knew what it meant. They hadn't heard of it. Yeah. And I made the argument, you know, someday, just like the word Chernobyl, it has a specific meaning in everybody's mind. You know, that's where that nuclear disaster happened, and that's what you think of when you hear the word Chernobyl, that someday when people hear the word Roswell, <clears throat> there, it's going to imply extraterrestrial visitation and the hiding of that by the forces that be. So that's what's happened. Um, everyone now knows the story, I think, worldwide. The government has come down as hard as it possibly can to try to discredit it. I think they've done a terrible job. Um, they haven't convinced me that this didn't happen as we portrayed it in the film. Not None of it has convinced me of that. As a matter of fact, I've just become all the more, more and more convinced through the years as more and more important people have put their reputations behind it, such as astronaut uh, Gordon Cooper, deceased, but one of the first uh, Mercury astronauts, true American hero, uh, who called me to a personal meeting um, in... Um, Glendale, I think it was, California, after the movie came out, and to tell me that he that he knew for a fact that what was in the movie was true and that we'd done such a good job of presenting it. And the same with astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who's walked on the moon, who said, this happened. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it did happen. And the public has been absolutely inundated with lies and disinformation. And there's, a, there's reasons behind that, but they haven't given up. The other side, which is the official side, you know, the official story, they're not surrendering an inch. Not not one solid inch. And I know, because I've brushed up against them hoping, again and again, hoping that within this 20-year span, since we really brought this forward, that their uh, attitude toward disclosing it would begin to change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that's there's no evidence of that. Yeah, that it's changed. Yeah. It's, no, it's zero. It's no traction at all. Zero. Yet. Yeah, yeah. It's maddening in a way for those of us who are deep into the subject. It's it's uh, stunning that that it, it has been no real movement towards getting to the bottom of this. What one of the things? This is almost a funny anecdote. I'm going to tell you that that uh, well, we have this this alien we created, this prop that's in our movie. Uh, Roswell. If you're looking for it, the look also for Roswell, the UFO cover-up. Okay. Because um, that was what the DVD was released under. And a little bit hard to find now, but it has been on TV a hundred times. Anyway, we have the alien prop. I have it in my office uh, that was a living alien in the movie. And I was invited by someone connected with Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and their Air Force Marathon that they hold, uh, I think, in September every year 
um, would I like to bring the alien uh, there? Uh, it's, it's Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, <laughs> where supposedly that you know, according to legend, that's where the real alien bodies were taken. Yeah. Um, but would I like to bring this there, as sort of a prop for the marathon, you know, for picture-taking opportunities of the runners? That you know, with their families and their kids, that you know, they they would sort of regard it as something would be fun, yeah, right? Not serious, you know, but fun. And I was open to that. Uh, I wanted to show the movie as part of it too. And as soon as that was suggested and got run up the flagpole, they came back with, "No, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're, oh, not man. We're not showing that one. Not, not, not at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Not in the hotel that's hosting the marathon. Not that movie because it offers a." a version of events that is contrary to an official government report. All right? So so my alien never made the trip. That's just out. Yeah. I can I can see yeah, I can see how they 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 would quickly backpedal on that once uh the prospect of showing the film came out. That's Well, amazing. you know the point I made to them, which I thought was a very good point. I said, "Look, everybody's heard of the Roswell incident. And let's say your point of view is correct and this is just a myth." If it's a myth, it's a really big myth. It's a major American myth now, at least on the scale or bigger than Paul Bunyan and his blue ox babe, right? Yeah. The giant blue ox. There was no giant blue ox. I mean, um, not that we know of. Um, but still, um, nobody's afraid of that as legend or myth. And, and I said, you know, well, why not, you know, have some fun with it then if it's just a myth? You know, acknowledge it as an American myth, uh, and um, and 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 use that as kind of a way to, if you want to laugh at it, then laugh at it. There's a lot of people not laughing, but you know, you can. Nope, 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 nope. That that idea didn't pass muster. <laughs> You'd think if they were so confident in their in their assurances that it didn't happen, they would be more. Uh, you know, wouldn't bother them, right? Yeah. They'd be more open to showing the movie. They'd be like, well, we know you're wrong, so we'll show it anyway. It's too bad, uh, but you're wrong. And even trot some guy out afterwards to say something. But no, nah, no, nah, they just uh, don't even want to touch it, which is mm-hmm. which speaks more to their their guilt in, in whatever the hell happened there. Now, as someone who's worked in Hollywood for years and years and years, there's a there's a sort of underlying, I don't know if you'd call it a conspiracy theory or what, uh, in the UFO community that there's this acclimation project underway to get people used to the idea of UFOs and, and aliens and stuff like that. And as, as I said, as someone who's worked in Hollywood for a very long time, uh, what's your thought on that theory, uh, that, there's, that there's this process at work? Well, whether it's a planned process, meaning whether there's somebody orchestrating the strings, or whether it's a natural result of the fact that these ideas and stories are popular, um, and satisfy a certain public need, I don't really know. I don't really know. Hmm. Uh, I do know that when you go all the way back to the, I think 1950 was when Robert Wise made the the original The Day the Earth Stood Still. Mm -hmm. Remember with Gort, the robot, and Klaatu, and the landing in Washington of the saucer. Um, I did know Robert Wise, and he 
uh, confided uh, in me that while he was making the movie that he had been informed by people uh, from many walks of life, engineers, people from Washington, um, that there were uh, flying saucers were real and that this extraterrestrial visitation was really happening and that <clears throat> it was hushed up. And he couldn't understand the reasons for the hush-up. He felt that was wrong. Um, but there's some who might say, well, the reason he got to make The Day There Stood Still in the first place was that there's this you know, secret acclamation program that somebody wanted to start planning the idea out there. Uh, but if that's true, there have been good movies and there have been awful ones. You know, and among the awful ones, you know, whether it's teenagers from outer space or, um, you know, Plan 9 from outer space, which is famous today because of what a lousy movie it is. It's, yeah. um, it, it's cool to be lousy, right? Um, but a lot of these movies have made the whole thing ridiculous and stupid and laughable. And a lot of the movies through the years have been, you know, so bad that that kind of serves the purpose, too, of uh, maybe... Uh, inoculating people with the idea, uh, but making it seem uh, ridiculous. So not anything really happening, nothing you need to worry about. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's a double-edged sword. It gets people used to the idea, but also it gets them to dismiss the idea. Yeah. But whether there's any deliberate plot behind that or or not, I think, is conjecture. Mm, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. We don't don't know. Yeah, we never really would know... uh, Unless someone came out and admitted to, to to it, and then people wouldn't believe that guy anyway. That's yeah, it could be disinformation. <laughs> yeah, there is yeah. so much. We're stuck yeah. in this uh, this feedback loop of the UFO field, where no matter who comes out and says something, we don't necessarily know what to believe anyway. So, and it's just become worse and worse mm-hmm. as time has gone by, because these days it's so easy to fake anything if you want to, you know, with with Adobe Photoshop. Oh yeah, pictures and whatever. If if that's your agenda. You know, to fool people, you can certainly do it, but now people wouldn't believe it anyway because they they wouldn't believe it when they see the real thing. They would think that they're seeing a special effect. So uh, I think that's unfortunate, really unfortunate, that we're at a point where um, that infects so much of our society, that just the overall disbelief, disbelief in what authority says, disbelief in official versions of events and stories and it's a, a absolute pervading skepticism toward anything you're told and i think it comes about because our our natural um inclination to be positive spirit and trusting has been abused again and again and again and again you know yeah that's a good point i mean you know, we're, we're we're still looking for the weapons of mass destruction in iraq right <laughs> exactly we're there they weren't there. We were told they were everywhere, that they presented a clear, near, and present danger to the United States. They weren't there. So, yes, it gets hard to believe a lot of what you hear. Yeah. In, yeah. in any field. Any field. It's difficult. It's difficult. Are you surprised, as I said, 20 years since the movie came out? I, I, I mean... Are you surprised that, that there's been this intraction in to the story? I mean, like, when you made the movie, were you thinking to yourself, well, this will be even more remarkable in 10 years when it comes out that this is all yes. true? Yes, absolutely. We felt that this could help disclosure, that disclosure couldn't be more than, you know, five or 10 years away. It, but it's a little bit like 
Look at the situation with uh, with the marijuana laws. All right. Yeah. Um, Timothy Leary, who I made the film Timothy Leary's Dead about, he was uh, sentenced to prison for ten years in Texas for possession of uh, one joint of marijuana. Um, and uh, later he was arrested again in California um, for the same thing. Uh, what he was—he he was running for governor at the time against Ronald Reagan. <laughs> uh, didn't have a chance, you know, but he was running for governor, and they. So he spent a lot of time in jail. I mean, he and and uh, I think five years in hard time. He was in Folsom Prison for a while, oh, wow. uh, where they had. Uh, Charles Manson, he was in the cell next door for a while. And, you know, his crime was uh, possession of marijuana and escape. Because with the help of the weathermen, he did escape from a low-security prison. This man was a famous psychologist, was, had been a professor from Harvard. He's the one who actually designed the personality tests that they give to prisoners to determine you know, how to handle them and whether they are high security or low, low security. Yeah. Um, it was called the Leary test. And when he was sent to prison, they administered the Leary test to <laughs> Professor Timothy Leary, you know, who, <laughs> who invented the test. It was his test. But here's a man who really suffered for possession of, simple possession of marijuana. Now, today, when you look at the statistics of the number of people who have uh, used it, I mean, it's staggering. It's become socially acceptable in most of the society, you know, yeah. but not all. It, and so things have moved in that direction. But we're talking here 60, about 65 years, or since the days of the beatniks, you know, maybe 65, 70 years. And there's still no legalization outright except in a couple of states, and it's still contrary to federal law. So change comes excruciatingly slowly, excruciating. Hmm. That's an example, and I think... You can use a similar parallel with that, with the UFO issue, um, that um, how far have we gotten since the Roswell movie came out 20 years ago or since the Roswell incident happened in 1947? What is the social progress? I think today most people believe that there is life in outer space. And probably a majority of those people believe that it has visited Earth. Um, but nobody in government is willing to confirm that for them yet. So how long will it take? You know, 50 years, 100 years? Or, or could could we be wrong in this conjecture that these are aliens visiting from outer space? We haven't absolutely proved it. Yeah, that's the critical aspect of the UFO yeah. field. We still I mean, the, the UFO field is open to the concept that, uh, I mean, some people conjecture, are they time travelers from the future coming back here? I don't think that's the case. But Or uh, could they be from another dimension? Hmm. That becomes easier to believe when you look at contemporary string theory, which postulates, I think it used to be 11 dimensions, and didn't they add two more? So now reality has 13 dimensions. And... They know something about the characteristics of these various dimensions. There was a scientist at the International UFO Congress in February, held uh, in Scottsdale, yep. that um, gave the theory that the UFOs are using the fifth dimension in order to get from their worlds to ours. And he used contemporary string theory, quantum theory, 
throw everything at it that contemporary science has to try to explain it. And he made it pretty comprehensible. You know, it, it was a terrific lecture, and I'm so sorry. I apologize to him, the fact that I don't have his name on the tip of my tongue. But, you know, there's good people doing that kind of research. We don't know where they're from. We, the public, we don't, we don't know. We conjecture. Right, right. And it's, it would be, it would behoove the UFO community to figure it out for ourselves and then take that information to the government. But whether that can happen is, uh, we're still trying, you know. It's two different worlds. Yeah. I, I meaning that there's the, uh, the, the UFO community is sort of the underworld. And then there's the official world where, you know, professors in universities, they don't even want to discuss the subject. You know, yeah. They don't want to hear about it. They, uh, you know, most of them, when you go to see a landing site, if you told them that one of them landed less than a mile away and you could walk to it, they wouldn't <laughs> go for fear that just having been there would contaminate their professional qualifications. Exactly. Know. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a crazy situation that we find ourselves in. And yeah, not, not a good one. It's very schizophrenic. Yeah, I totally agree with you that it's, uh, well, I've, I've pointed out on the show, you say schizophrenic, I think you're right, there's a schism in a way too of, uh, in the UFO community where it's, I think all these years of the scientific end of things has given way more to the activist end where I don't know necessarily if activism is the right avenue to take because the government, they, they, they won't even bend much less. Oh, it won't do any them. good. No, no, it'll just get you on somebody's list. <laughs> <laughs> God knows they've got a lot of lists these days, don't they? <laughs> That's so, for sure, yeah. Uh-huh. But it, it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty maddening. But I, I do uh, I do enjoy following the field and seeing where it's going. But it's absolutely fascinating, yeah. really. And I think there have been so many valid cases. To me, one of the interesting developments is when a man like John Alexander, mm-hmm. who's an expert on uh, non-lethal weaponry and has written books about that. He was an army colonel. Mm-hmm. Very learned man, educated, uh, skeptic, very hard-nosed, very, uh, you know, reality-centered. You know, he's, he's been military, he's been government, government advisor. <clears throat> Who knows what all his connections are. But, you know, he's usually the guy that tries to poke the holes in the theories having to do with UFOs when he shows up at the conferences. Um, but he did write a book called uh, UFOs, and uh, the very first sentence, I think, is UFOs are real. And he concedes now, particularly in talking about the Bentwaters, Rendlesham Forest incident from England, that that was a real case, legitimate. It was from elsewhere. We can't explain it. A true unknown. Hmm. And it's interesting to see him opening up the door. In, in his own thinking and public speaking, because, you know, he's one of the last guys you would expect to do it. The somewhat infuriating part about his approach is, he says, you know, you want disclosure? You know, you, you've had as much disclosure as you're going to get. It's already happened. <laughs> Just listen to some of the people out there that have said that it's true, and that's as much as you're going to get. And then he says, is it important? No, not nearly as important as you think it is. You know, the, the, the issues of uh, having enough food and water for people throughout the world and dealing with nuclear proliferation, and these are the important things. The fact that we have extraterrestrial visitors, very low on the scale, 
the reason you don't hear about it from the president is that it's, you know, so unimportant compared to the things he really has to deal with. Well, I don't, I don't accept that. I don't believe that. But I mean, I do believe that we have, we have visitors, uh, who have, uh, kept their, their origins somewhat of a mystery from us, mm. but um, unimportant? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I agree with you that it's not unimportant, but I, I kind of see his point of view in a sense where if you look at it like we're ants and, yeah. and, the, and, the, and the intelligences, whatever they are, ETs, whatever, are, are humans. I mean, I'm sure to the ants, they're like, okay, there's these humans that come through every now and again, and sometimes they kill us, and sometimes bad things happen, but we need to yeah. focus on digging the tunnels and getting the sugar. And Yeah, as long as we don't get stepped on, right. we're okay. <laughs> right. So don't worry about those shoes unless they're about to step on you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe the government just knows uh, you know, when the shoes will come through or, or how to avoid the shoes, and they've already yeah. figured that out, and they're like, listen, they're... These these things are akin to animals in a sense. They come through. Who knows what they want? We don't know, you know. And they, I guess, maybe the government knows our own limitations. But I don't know. I mean, it's all speculation. It's all based on other people's opinions and things. So that, that's right. But uh, but I stay with the field. I like to go to the conferences. There's a lot of good speakers out there. A lot of people doing very good work in this field. A lot of really good books being written. And I, I try to stay on top of it all. It's fascinating to me. Nice. As nice. someone who once had a sighting, and that was what propelled my uh, involvement with the Roswell incident. Uh, so that was 1987. And it's been written up in journals and uh, much discussed. Um, so I became convinced of the reality of uh, these unidentified flying objects way before I was convinced in something like, oh, spirits, life after death, you know, hearing from somebody who's died, no, I, you know, it took me a long time to open up to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? I can imagine, yeah. So, uh, well, we're, we're right at the end here, so uh, what's, you talk about good work, uh, you do some great work, so what's next for you? What well, well let me let me say, I'd like people to be able to find me, mm-hmm. and as a, the, my name is Paul Davids, which is David with an S, mm-hmm. middle name Jeffrey, um, although I don't use that on my published work and my <laughs> films, yeah. but um, I'm, I'm easy to find. I mean, there's so many things about me online if you uh, if you Google it, and if you go to Amazon, you can find um, most of my projects, including books, including some books of poetry that I've uh, written. Some of oh, them nice. very funny. It's all out there, and my my uh, the website Paul Davids, and then a hyphen, and then the word artist dot com has uh, a lot of uh, examples of my art in addition to things about my movies and and, and books and uh, all different kinds of things about my career. So uh, I've gone to all the work of uh, producing all of this creative output, and, uh, you know, I really appreciate when when people expose themselves to it and enjoy it. Absolutely, absolutely. As you said, pauldavids.com is one hub. pauldavids.com is one site, or pauldavids-artist.com is the other. Okay, and the uh, film lifeafterdeathproject.com. Yes, that'll tell you all about this particular film. On that note, Paul, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I'd love to talk to you further in the future uh, about all this stuff again, and I really loved the film. As I said, it's great when you have a great story and you put it together with a great communicator and it really comes together in a a, a great fashion, and that's what the Life After Death Project uh, film is. 
is all about. So, Well, I really enjoyed our interview, and I, I hope you'll send me a, a link to it for the podcast so I can uh, track it down once it's out there. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 8. Big, big thanks to Paul Davids for coming on the show and telling us so much about the Life After Death Project. Folks, you definitely want to check this film out. It is fantastic. And you can find out more from Paul Davids at the website, www.pauldavids.com. Pretty simple, all one word, pauldavids.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, normally this would be BOA audio listener feedback time, but since this is Memorial Day weekend here in the United States, I would like to get this episode out to folks as soon as possible. And we've got an all-new live edition of the program coming at you on Tuesday, so we're really crunching this episode with Paul Davids into the schedule, and I want to make sure I get it out to folks lest it gets lost in the shuffle. As such, we're going to overlook BOA audio listener feedback here this week, but I've got three fantastic emails that I had lined up for this installment of the show. I will get to those next time on BOA audio listener feedback. And if you would like to contribute to the segment in future editions of the show, here is how you can reach out to me. Simply write to info at banalofamerica.com. Pretty simple. Info at banal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, of America.com. Or if you want something a little more interactive, you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E. E.com. We like to call it BOA's Paranormal Playground, where we discuss the world of pop culture and the paranormal and a whole bunch of other fun stuff. That is the United States of Esoterica. You can also find it by going to Banal of America and clicking the forum button. If you're on Facebook and Twitter, I would be remiss if I did not mention that you can find me there as well. Simply punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L. That'll bring up my profile. From there, feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. Additionally, there is Benal of America on Facebook, where the BOA fans congregate and discuss the program, post their thoughts on the show for me to read, and get the latest news from BOA. Simply punch in Banal of America on Facebook. That'll bring up the page and like us. Up next, please allow me to take a moment and thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our webmaster, Ray Weigel, and our graphics guru, Jeremy Boston. If you haven't done so yet and you have the time, head on over to Banal of America right now. We've got a new piece from Richard Thomas at BOA titled Another Crashed UFO in New Mexico, looking at the infamous Aztec UFO incident. 
That's at BOA right now. Another fine piece from our friend Richard Thomas. Now comes the time in the program where I take my hat off and pass it around to the BOA audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to the Banal of America franchise. How do you do that? That's simple. You can go on over to banalofamerica.com and click the PayPal button. That'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the Internet and you want to make a snail mail donation, you are in luck because we have a P.O. box for just that very reason. You can mail your donation to Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass., 01866, and you can find the complete address if you missed it just now at Benal of America under the PayPal button. As we say at the end of the donation plug on each installment of the show, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial free. For all of our great readers and listeners the world over. As I teased when I eschewed BOA Audio listener feedback, we've got an all-new live edition of BOA Audio coming at you in just a few short days. Tuesday, in fact, May 27th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Classic BOA Audio live guerrilla radio. You never know when it's going to happen. This time around, it's coming at you Tuesday, May 27th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time as we welcome back to the program Melinda Leslie, who appeared way, way back on BOA Audio Season 1. That is an astounding gap between appearances, and it is long overdue that we featured the return of Melinda Leslie on BOA Audio. For those unaware, Melinda Leslie is a pioneering researcher in the field of my labs, military abductions. We're going to hear all about what she's been up to in the eight plus years since she appeared on BOA Audio Season 1. It's going to be a fun conversation. I actually talked to Melinda a couple of weeks ago to set all this up and just really enjoyed our off-the-air conversation. Cannot wait to reunite Melinda Leslie with BOA Audio and the BOA Audio listeners. So, that is, once again, Tuesday, May 27th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Pretty good time slot, I think. It'll cover a lot of folks in the U.K. who might want to tune in live, as well as the folks on the West Coast of the United States who want to tune in live as well. So hopefully we'll reach a wide range of live listeners at the 5 p.m. start time. Melinda Leslie returns to BOA Audio to discuss my labs and much, much more. With all that said, we close the book on this installment of the program. Big, big thanks once again to Paul Davids for coming on the show. And, of course, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA audio listeners. To the folks in the United States, I hope you all have a fantastic Memorial Day weekend. And to the listeners around the world, 
I hope you enjoyed this installment of the program. No matter where you reside, the hardcore listeners are, as always, the fuel that drives the BOA mothership. Thank you for your enduring support of the program and for once again making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.